Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I'm not surprised, to be honest. Um, you know, he had been saying recently that he has a, quote, narrow path to the nomination. But then when you would ask, you know, his aides and allies what that was, they wouldn't even try to answer it. Hey, Nerdcasters. I'm your host, Scott Bland. On the show today, we're talking about two political figures heading in different directions. One of them, Bernie Sanders. He is sort of like this generation's Eugene Debs. That is a fantastic Nerdcast reference right there. I love it. <laughs> Pulling the plug on his presidential dreams on Wednesday. Thank you all very much. And one figure, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Good evening. Who may be at the start of a big national rise. I'm honored to be here and grateful that you're tuning in. As Politico correspondent Tim Alberta writes this week. Gretchen Whitmer is, I think, the most universally liked person that I've ever profiled. We're going to start off talking about Sanders. Now that Holly is about to get the break uh, from covering this grueling campaign that she richly deserves, we took a little bit of her time first to talk about the way this all went down on Wednesday and how Sanders' campaign ended. It was a fascinating campaign to cover. I mean, there was really nothing like it. And, you know, getting ready to to talk to you about this today, I was going back and looking and it shocked me. I was thinking, you know, this is one of the biggest political comeback stories ever for Joe Biden in, in a lot of ways, having having come back to, to win the primary. And I was looking and I was like, OK, what kind of time scale are we talking about? And it was six weeks ago. I know. It was <laughs> six weeks ago that Sanders looked to be in the driver's seat, if not to win the nomination outright, then certainly to, to get the most delegates going into the convention. He had won New Hampshire. He had won Nevada. <laughs> and, and he was in this great position. And then Joe Biden wins South Carolina and takes this huge momentum into Super Tuesday. And Sanders... Sanders couldn't rest it back. I mean, it, it was it was just like this lightning strike. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like the tables were turned, right? Because in many ways, Bernie Sanders has been the comeback kid. I mean, when you look at, you know, his heart attack, right, earlier in the campaign when he was just absolutely down in the polls, Warren was soaring, then he had a heart attack and somehow he came back. Well, this was the opposite of that. It was it was the comeback kid was Biden. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is crazy to think about how short a time period we're talking about. I mean, it was only about a month ago that um, Super Tuesday happened. And that's really the beginning of the end. Holly, you and David Siders wrote on Wednesday as Bernie dropped out, by bowing out now, Sanders is largely foregoing a repeat of the lengthy, bitterly contested nominating contest against Hillary Clinton during his 2016 campaign. Why do you think Sanders was going for that cleaner, certainly earlier break this time. Uh, certainly some of it is a momentum issue, but but I, I it seems like there are other reasons at play as well. Yeah, I think there are a few things. I mean, one, as you just mentioned, there's a momentum problem. Back in 2016, he was still winning races, all right? I mean, he won Michigan, for instance. That was another comeback story for him. That gave him a lot of hope. Well, this time around, he lost Michigan by double digits really badly to Joe Biden. Um, we haven't seen the results yet for Wisconsin's primary this week, but they're expected to be very bad for Sanders. And so he, you know, he didn't even have states that he could point to that he was winning. I do think that that played a role. I do. 
So what? Where does Sanders go uh, fr- from here? You know, I, we we talked. Um, I think after Super Tuesday, we had our colleague Eugene Daniels on to talk about how deeply Sanders had exposed Biden's weakness among young voters, and and, and on the flip side, you know, the 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 devotion that that Sanders had built up from from young voters in these two campaigns. Joe Biden clearly understands uh, that this is a a potential problem for him, but also an opportunity for him. You know, his statement upon Sanders dropping out made a point of thanking Sanders and his supporters for their passion. And and he he's really sent a lot of signals that he was taking seriously the fact that he needs to appeal to these folks and win them over. What what do you see as kind of the next steps in that? And what role does Sanders have to play? I mean, I think Sanders has a huge role to play in in convincing his supporters to vote for Biden. While the majority, the overwhelming majority of Sanders supporters voted for Clinton in 2016, Clinton ended up losing, you know, the three Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, by tens of thousands of votes. So, you know, every voter matters when you have races that are this close. And so every person who votes third party or just sits out the race you know, because they're upset that Sanders didn't win is a major problem. And even in states where Sanders lost really badly to Biden, he would win voters not just under, you know, 30, but under like 45. I mean, we're talking about like a pretty significant amount of people. Mm -hmm. We've also reported that Biden's campaign has had private conversations with some of Sanders' top allies, groups like the Sunrise Movement, in an attempt to, you know, build bridges so I do think that Biden's campaign is is well aware of this problem. And I think that Sanders has a big role to play in, in trying to win those people over. One challenge is going to be for right now, there's no rallies to do. You know, there's yeah. no there's no big endorsement rally that they can do right now. I mean, I guess they can go uh, have a live stream, but that's just <laughs> I mean, that's not the same. You know, like you're not going to have, you know, hordes of Sanders supporters show up to see him speak on a live stream. I mean, he gets big numbers online, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it's kind of kind of an amusing image, though. I guess they'll have to figure out something to do. <laughs> yeah. Holly, one, one, one last question that's kind of uh, breaking my brain a little bit as I, as I think through all this. I mean, how flummoxed are Sanders aides by the fact that the Medicare for all guy is out amidst this global pandemic that is causing everyone to reevaluate their thinking about government role in many, many things, but healthcare especially. I think it's really frustrating for a lot of them. And, you know, certainly they can imagine a world where Sanders is the nominee and he's like picking up this baton and freaking sprinting with it, right? Like just railing against Trump over, you know, healthcare um, at this time of this pandemic. I mean, I'll say too, like this is part of the reason that some of his aides and allies thought that he should stay in, even absent a, a real path, is to just push Biden to the left, particularly on the issue of Medicare for all. And some of them also thought that, you know, maybe, just maybe, the pandemic would change everything and that people would be, you know, voters would be more open to left-wing ideas like Medicare for all. It seems like the thing that the pandemic changed is it has just like totally pushed the Democratic primary like off the... Yeah. It's not even the second story anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that's exactly right. I think that made it also much harder for Sanders to continue to compete. And he referenced that. He said that to campaign in this time is just extremely difficult. And it, and I, I think that that changed things as well. I mean, 
you had an electorate that didn't want to see a primary dragged on anyway because of Trump. And then you had one that was even less interested because, you know, they're losing their jobs. You know, there's this pandemic going on. There's an economic meltdown going on. And, and you know, they're just not as interested in a primary. All right, Holly, we're going to let you go. You're, you're still hitting the phones to uh, figure out exactly what happened here and report through that for Politico. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me. And for our next segment, we're going to talk about the woman in Michigan, that woman from Michigan. That's a quote from President Donald Trump. He was talking about Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a rising star in the Democratic Party and someone who's getting a lot of buzz and speculation as a potential vice presidential nominee. And here to talk about Gretchen Whitmer and his Politico magazine piece about her, we've got Tim Alberta, Politico's Ypsilanti bureau chief. Hey Tim, how you doing? Ypsilanti. I think I think I'm the Michigan bureau chief. We, we did I say that right? Did I say Ypsilanti? Right? It's it, well, it's Ypsilanti with a, Ypsilanti. a harder okay. A. The locals call it Ipsy uh, because okay. it's it's a very uh, chic and cool. Um, but uh, I don't think anybody would blame you for not knowing how to pronounce it. It is sort of the Brooklyn to Ann Arbor's Manhattan, often overlooked. <laughs> All right. Well, in, in, in addition to being uh, Politico's man in Michigan, Tim is also uh, our chief political correspondent, and he has this profile about Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, that we're going to dig into because she she's all over the news right now. I'm excited to chat with my friend Gretchen Whitmer on this show today. And Some eyebrows were raised when Joe Biden invited her onto his podcast earlier this week as a guest. And so with that, I'd like to welcome Governor Whitmer. Governor, welcome. Thank you for being with me. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Governor, uh, I paid close attention to your leadership in Michigan from the time you got elected. It was only the second episode ever of this new podcast that he's hosting, and his second ever guest was Gretchen Whitmer. And, you know, what most people, I think, who listen to that podcast wouldn't recognize is that Joe Biden and Gretchen Whitmer barely know one another. Right. Uh, The other people who you hear mentioned as possibilities, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, these are people who have relationships with Joe Biden. I mean, heck, these are people who have relationships with America. They they have run uh, national campaigns themselves and and they have some real name identification. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer is 15 months into her first term as governor, and she only met Joe Biden in 2018 when he came to campaign for her in Michigan. So these are not people with a longstanding relationship. And yet, they clearly are, I think, more similar to one another in a lot of ways than Amy Klobuchar is to Biden or, or than Harris is to Biden. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer— and, and you're not talking about politics here. You're talking about their personality. Personality, yeah, their style, their political style. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer is sort of a classic— backslapping politician, somebody who loves to tell a dirty joke, somebody who, uh, I mean, she's she talks about being a hugger and how hard this whole thing is for her to keep the social distancing. I mean, she's just, she and Joe Biden, uh, I was really struck in the time I was spending with her. They really are alike in a lot of ways. And so you do wonder if uh, if the two of them get to spend some time together as she's being vetted, with which, you know, I'm not sure that that will happen because of everything that's on her plate, not to mention because of the social distancing phenomenon. But I, you do wonder if Biden will start to pick that up a little bit uh, and if that could wind up, you know, helping her case to be his running mate. Tim, I think you and I first talked about Gretchen Whitmer close to a decade ago when we were both on staff at the hotline. And that's kind of the original DC publication that went deep in the weeds of every 
House, Senate, and Governor's race. And I have this memory, Tim, of, of you talking to me maybe in like 2012 or so about this rising star state senator that Democrats in your home state were talking about as a contender for governor. I'm sure we did, Scott. That would be consistent with sort of my keeping an eye on Whitmer over a long period of time. You know, she would have been around that time in 2012, she would have been the Senate minority leader in Michigan. And in fact, you know, she and I were joking about this the other day. I covered her 15 years ago or so in the state house in Michigan when um, when she had just jumped from the House of Representatives over to the state Senate. Uh, this was in 2006. And, you know, it's funny. I, I went back, Scott, and talked with colleagues of hers, Republican and Democrat, people who served with her years ago, you know, back in um, 2001, 2002, when she first came to the legislature. And they all said the same thing. You know, you just knew that she was going to be a star, that, that she just had all the makings of a real player in Lansing. She's a trained lawyer, uh, very smart, somebody who sort of got the policy, but somebody who also just had, you know, personality in spades, somebody who loved to talk to people, somebody who was really good at talking to people. She was just, you know, empathetic and, and easygoing and comfortable in her own skin. She just had a combination of all of these traits that make a good politician, frankly. It was just that simple. And so I remember seeing that as a cub reporter covering the state house and yeah when i moved to dc i sort of kept tabs from a distance on what was happening back home and as she continued to rise it was clear that sooner or later she was going to run for statewide office and uh she she dipped a toe in the water very briefly in 2010 thinking about a run for attorney general she pulled back uh, and probably smartly so because that was such a bloodbath of a year for democrats uh and then she didn't wind up running for governor in 2014 when everybody and their uncle thought that she would and in fact, she wound up retiring uh, after 2014. She was term limited out. And so at that point, a lot of people thought, well, geez, maybe she's done. Uh, but sure enough, she resurfaced uh, in 2018 and did wind up running for governor. Yeah, you know, she ended up being part of this big wave of Democratic women running and winning in Michigan, three statewide, two in big battleground congressional districts, uh, you know, obviously a bunch of other offices as well. And you know, that was kind of the context in which she was known nationally to the degree she was known until coronavirus upends everything uh, early this year. And amid the fight against coronavirus, you found her uh, for reporting your story in a very different context than the kind of insider operator she was known as in, in Michigan's political circles before now, it seemed to me. Yeah, that that's right. Uh, it's just something really different from what Whitmer's experience had been. She had always been this sort of wheeling, dealing, inside politician, somebody who was really known in the state house as, you know, somebody who was going to break your neck one day and then buy you a martini the next. And uh, <laughs> just a kind of a consummate inside player uh, who really loved the game. You know, you can't emphasize that enough. She just loved the game. She was really good at it. She was sort of born into an establishment family, banked on a lot of establishment connections to get into the state house in the first place. And and suddenly the game just is not appetizing to her or to anybody. I mean, because there are just there are lives on the line. This is a life and death situation. And Michigan at this point has the third most deaths from COVID-19 of any state in the country. And here she is running the state, uh, you know, barely sleeping because she's just 
on conference calls all day trying to figure out you know what she can do to get equipment, what the hospitals are doing in terms of some of their experimental testing, what her constituents need. It's an extremely stressful situation, and, and suddenly she doesn't have any time or any appetite to be that sort of player anymore. And in the middle of all this, she and President Donald Trump have, have uh, gotten into it a little bit, I think uh, it's the best way to put it. I just know from knowing her a little bit, Scott, and from talking to all these people who know her, she would love to fire back. I mean, she is she sort of prides herself on really being a smartass and somebody who likes to give as good as she gets. And she just she couldn't she couldn't afford to get into any more of a pissing match with the president of the United States because she knows the president of the United States could help her save lives in Michigan. I, you know, he, he has these fickle resources at his disposal and she needs as many of them as she can get. So she is in this extremely uh, precarious position here where on the one hand, she's dealing with this unprecedented public health crisis. On the other hand, she's in the middle of this tit for tat of sorts with the president of the United States. And then of course, well, which I'm sure we're going to get to next on the third hand, if you have a third hand, she is auditioning actively to be the running mate for Joe Biden on the ticket this November and balancing all three of those things is really something to behold. Yeah, and they and they're all wrapped up in each other, right? It you know, it seems very much like well, I guess, you know, first of all, if we can you know, contrast uh, what Whitmer's doing here and what Trump's doing a little bit. You 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 wrote this really interesting line about Whitmer about how she loves a good fight but is very selective about picking them. And on the flip side, you got Trump just looking at the pure politics, and obviously there's a lot more to it than that, but looking at the politics of of what Trump has been doing over the last month and a half, it seems like his abject hatred of criticism and political enemies as he sees them has appeared to interfere with his own political imperatives in this case to shower love on a king uh, on a on a key swing state that's pretty central to his re-election hopes and and the, the way you just phrase it about about whitmer um you know make, makes clear that she understands what trump can do for her a little less clear that 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 road runs both ways yeah i think that's right uh scott there's there's a more nuanced calculation for whitmer here which is that you know look uh, she wants to stand up for the people in her state. She wants to stand up for herself, certainly. But she she understands that, uh, again, uh, Trump in many ways holds the keys to the kingdom here. And, and, she, and she can't afford to be alienating anybody at this point who can offer her help. Uh, and she is very selective about picking her fights. You know, I mentioned how in 2010, uh, she was expected to run for attorney general. You know, she wound up saying that it was family considerations keeping her out of that race. But a lot of people close to her said, nope, she, she's, she just saw the way the winds were blowing in 2010. And she knew that it was going to be a bad year for Democrats. And she didn't want to lose her first statewide race. So she pulled out. 2014 kind of saw the same writing on the wall. It was going to be a really bad year for Democrats. She didn't want to enter that kind of environment, so she didn't wind up running. That's all to say that, yeah, she's really, really strategic about picking her fights. And that is in direct contrast with the president who really never met a fight that he didn't like. He he just he is a classic, you know, shoot first, ask questions later type of type of guy. And 
In some cases, that has served him well. But just looking at the raw politics of this, because look, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a massive health crisis and and people are dying. We want to be respectful of that. But it is an election year. And, uh, you know, this time next year, uh, we're going to either have Donald Trump beginning another four year term or Joe Biden uh, as the new president of the United States. And I think in large part, that will be determined by how this plays out over the next four or five, six months. You know, how how citizens feel that this president handled this pandemic. And in Michigan, very anecdotally, but there are some indications that people aren't thrilled with Donald Trump uh, sort of being up to his old tricks and making this so overtly political. And so in that regard, Scott, I think Whitmer is probably really smart to show some restraint and, and not sort of give him the type of ad hominem back and forth that he seemed to be uh, looking for when he when he was sort of firing back at her in those personal terms. Yeah, I mean, you you were with Whitmer during a, a telephone conversation that, that she was having um, with an, an ordinary citizen who, who put this in pretty stark relief, it seemed like. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I had asked her team if I could just sort of spend as much of the day as possible just shadowing her and, and, and seeing what it looks like uh, to be in her shoes right now, to be trying to juggle all of these things. And and a lot of what she was doing that day was just making constituent calls. There was this one particularly interesting call with a gentleman named John. And John, we wound up learning, was a, a conservative and a Trump voter. Uh, he was a recently retired army combat veteran had served three tours overseas and had just returned home to Michigan. And when John picked up the phone, he sounded sort of emotional. And he told the governor that uh, just less than 40 minutes earlier, a, a, a close family friend had died uh, from the coronavirus. And Whitmer was just sort of completely uh, knocked off her stride by this. And uh, she had had a lot of hard conversations that day, but this seemed to really hit her hard. And the two of them wound up talking on the phone for, you know, I think maybe 10 or 12 minutes. And it was really interesting. Whitmer was just asking him about his fiance, who was a nurse, and the lack of equipment at her hospital, which was why he'd called her office in the first place. And so they were having a talk about her, about this man's family and about the concerns he has and everything else. And then completely unsolicited, he said, you know, I got to tell you, Governor, uh, I, I appreciate you calling and telling me this. I tried to call the White House and I couldn't get through. And I'm just really upset with the president and his petulance. That was the word he used. He said his petulance, because now is just not the time for this kind of stuff. And if and if I could tell him that, I would tell him that to his face. And, you know, Whitmer uh did her very best to sort of um, keep a poker face while she heard that. Uh, But it was clear that, you know, while you're in the middle of this back and forth with the president of the United States, to hear from one of his very loyal supporters that uh, that he is sort of on your side in this, that he that, you know, all you're you know, all we're trying to focus on here is saving lives and, and doing everything we can for Michiganders. I'm sure that that was uh, reaffirming for her. And, and that call to me was pretty eye opening. But it also I, I think was, you know, it, it was reaffirming 
things I had heard on the ground here, Scott, from friends, from mm-hmm. family members, a lot of people from a you know a story I wrote from Sam's Club a couple of weeks ago, where you meet Trump supporters themselves who were like, listen, man, this is just really not the time to be to be sort of digging into that old bag of tricks. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's possible. I don't get the sense that Trump is thinking about this moment the way that Whitmer and I think most governors right now seem to be very clearly thinking about this moment, that they're acutely aware that that what they're doing right now might be the only thing that people ever remember about them. Now, of course, to now circling back, finally, <laughs> uh, to, to a point you made uh, a few moments ago, that won't be true for Whitmer if anything comes of this VP buzz that's surrounding her. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, how, how has she come into the conversation as a potential running mate? Yeah, gosh, that's, you know, it's, it's Scott, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, let me tackle both points because it's so interesting. I mean, yeah, quickly to that first point, Whitmer's first year in office as governor was really, really brutal. Uh, And I don't think folks necessarily realize that, but and it'll probably come up if she winds up being tapped as Joe Biden's running mate. But her agenda went completely sideways. Uh, She sort of got steamrolled by Republicans in the state house. Uh, she attempted to flex her muscle a couple of times, and and she and it really did not go well. After after winning by ten points, right? You yeah, think you, you have a little bit of muscle at that. Yeah, point. Yeah, you you thought that she had a bit of a mandate, and and certainly a lot of political capital to use. And her first year in office was just an abject failure, according to basically everybody, Republican and Democrat, that I talked to in Michigan. Um, and what was interesting is that despite that, she was still tapped to give the State of the Union address, uh, and she did really well, I think, by all accounts. Um, and, and I think that demonstrated that, you know, the people in Michigan might be paying attention to the turn of the screw with legislative maneuvering, but at a national stage, uh, you know, not so much. But now, Scott, to that to that point, because of the pandemic and because Michigan is really at the eye of the storm— it, I mean, honestly, anything that happened uh, up until March of 2020 is completely irrelevant now to how Gretchen Whitmer is going to be viewed, I think, in, in the long haul uh, because of how all-consuming this, 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 can, this public health crisis is. That having been said, to your point, the one thing that could be on par with this, the one thing that could be uh, sort of just as historically relevant is her being elevated to the national ticket. I mean, it's such an interesting moment. And, and I'm, I'm just curious, maybe as the last question here, your, your kind of uh, view on this, having done so many of these political profiles, trying to, and you know, the whole point is to try and find people at an inflection point, right? And and write about them at, the, at that perfect moment in time. And this is this really interesting moment for Whitmer where, you know, we could look back now, uh, we could look back at now and say, it's uh, th- this is how the, this political star was born. Or she could end up being being a footmo- footnote. And, w- and we just don't really know. We don't know what direction it's going to go. I mean, if, if, you, if you, anybody pretends to know, then they're crazy, right? Because... Um... You know, we all joked about how we were getting out of the prediction business after November of 2016, Scotty. But this is, you know, these waters are just so uncharted. And and you have such an incredible convergence of events here, particularly when we're talking about Whitmer and in the context of 
everything she's dealing with. I mean, to be governor of a state that is just getting slaughtered by this this once in a century pandemic and to be simultaneously uh, kind of auditioning for this role of vice president. And, and all the while, of course, to have the president attacking you in really personal terms, that's enough to make just about anybody have an anxiety attack and want to crawl underneath a bed, right? Like, how do you even get out? How do you get in front of cameras? How do you do the job? Um, it's a really, it's a really, really incredible thing to be in the middle of all of that at the same time. Absolutely. Urge everyone to, to check out Tim's piece on Politico magazine. Tim, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day to walk us through it and introduce us all to Gretchen Whitmer. My pleasure, Scotty. Best to you and to the Bland household. All right, that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. We'll talk to you again next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening.